0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number nine. Today we're joined by Craig Doherty, co-author of the much acclaimed book Whitetails from Ground to Gun, and we'll be discussing the concept of ground to gun hunting which the CEO of the Quality Deer Management Association calls a monumental leap into a new area of whitetail knowledge. Stick around, folks, because you don't want to miss this. Now, before we get started here today, I want to quickly apologize in advance for a few audio issues in this upcoming interview due to a poor phone connection with our guest. Thanks in advance for your understanding. All right. Hello, Wired Hunt Nation, and thank you all so much for being with us. Today, we've got an extra special episode of the Wired Hunt podcast because joining me and Dan today is a board member of the Quality Deer Management Association, the president of the wildlife consulting company North Country Whitetails, and the best selling author of two books, Grow 'em Right and Whitetails from Ground to Gun. This is Mr. Craig Doherty. Welcome to the show, Craig.
1: Well, thank you. Happy to be with you and your uh, podcasters.
0: Yeah, we are thrilled to have you here today as well. And, you know, with that said, Craig, today we're hoping to chat about this concept of ground-to-gun hunting, which your newest book is really focused on. But before we get to that, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to be the author of this book?
1: Well, uh, Mark, I've been, uh, I've been, of course, a lifetime hunter like all of us, a lot of us, and uh I've put in a few years uh, out there after deer, and uh, but basically I've been in the hunting industry for about 35 years, most of it in the archery industry, um, working as a senior executive with a number of companies including uh, Golden Eagle Archery and Bear Archery, uh, uh, kind of part of the ownership group of those companies, and I've served over the years on many boards uh, within the hunting industry, national bowhunter education, uh, archery trade association, etc. So, um, hunting is both my vocation and my avocation, and deer hunting is uh, what I'm all about, and I raised a son in a similar tradition who wound up a, becoming a uh, wildlife consultant, and uh, we started North Country Whitetails together about 15 years, and now... Uh, ago, and my son Neil, is that's all he does is uh, every day of his life he's on land somewhere doing something with deer. So uh, over that time, uh, you pick up a few things, you know, and uh, you begin to understand a few things and learn a few things, and the best part of it all is you interface with so many people who hunt deer and experience deer hunting at all different levels. And working with land and working with landowners, um, we turned our 500-acre property here in upstate New York into a demo center. Uh, We worked with Biologic as their northern research arm and the same with the uh, Whitetail Institute. So we've been deeply into the whole habitat part of this deer equation since really the late 80s when it all started. I think about 1988, the whole food plot thing started and people began planting for deer and managing habitat for deer. And We uh, converted our property into a demo center. We've had well over 3,000 people through it over the years who've come in to look and learn and see. Wow. And uh, we, we, we spent tons of time with the public answering their questions and listening to their questions and listening to their answers to our questions. And as far as the book goes, uh, the Ground a Gun uh, title is is really uh, an extension of where it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the public were all about the, north and the northern people were saying, hey, can you grow food plots in the north? <laughs> that literally was the most commonly asked question 10 years ago. And of course... We've gone a huge distance since then, and people are managing property all over this country, all over the United States, and the questions have shifted from how do you work with a property to now that I've grown a mature buck or two, how the heck do I kill them? And this is what my son, Neil, spends virtually all of his time doing with clients, is helping them develop great hunting properties, but more so, how do I hunt it now that I've got some deer out here with some age on them? And the real operative question in today's deer world is, how do I kill a mature deer? Because more and more people are passing up young bucks. The the you know quality deer management has taken hold in virtually everywhere. Uh, there's more and more two- and three- and five-year-old deer out there, and that's not the same deer as that year and a half that everyone killed. And you need to think about them a lot differently, and uh, we think we have a few answers that we've developed over the years.
0: yeah, well uh, I can say from from reading your books over the over the past couple of years that it sure seems like you you do have some of those answers. From what I've seen, there's some really interesting stuff there. so you, as I mentioned at the top of the show. We wanted to dive more into this topic of ground-to-gun hunting, which, you know, your, your newest book, White Tails from Ground to Gun, covers, which also, as of this week, is available as an ebook format on Amazon, I believe. But with that said, could you kind of break down exactly for us what does ground-to-gun hunting mean?
1: Well, Mark, the, the, the essence of ground-to-gun is the connection between understanding land and understanding deer and we really don't believe you can fully understand deer unless you understand how land works. They're so connected, intricately connected, they're inseparable. And frankly, I've been a lifetime hunter, but I hunted 20 years for deer without understanding land. And I got lucky and was able to get some land and work on land all the time. And when I began to understand how land worked, and where things grew and why they grew and what was the warm side of a, of a slope versus the cold side of a slope and why I should be on the warm side and hunting in December and on the cool side, hunting in September, I began to understand that there was a, a, a very deep connection between how deer use land and how land works itself. So our book is not only about... Uh, going hunting but understanding how deer use land and how how land influences deer behavior, deer movement and uh, we think that's the key to really becoming a finished accomplished deer hunter. Well
0: that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. Um so your your book like you mentioned talking about both the land and then how to hunt those deer on the land you you've broken up your book into two parts or two parts. Part 1 being focusing on that land side of the equation and you know while going through those first couple, couple chapters some of the things that i found very interesting were the fact that you were looking at you know what does a piece of hunting ground have to have to hold a mature deer to be able to grow mature deer and to eventually be a good hunting property as well so could you share with us a little bit about you know what those aspects of a property are that will result in that great hunting property that we're all looking for
1: well mark the uh, the the uh... We, we deal with land all the time. Um, basically, we work on people's properties. We work on our own property, and we look for properties for people to buy. And so we see a lot of ground. And basically, there's certain things we look for when we're going to get a – put someone into a hunting property. and something that people would look for. And I'll be honest, I, I don't mean to st- – have it come out the wrong way, but the the wrong guy to get you a hunting property is a realtor. Uh, I happen to be a <laughs> licensed real estate agent here in New York <laughs> State, and uh, I, that's not how I make my living, but I, I needed to do it because I was involved with some real estate deals over the years, but, um, th- you know, realtors sell issues, and uh, they understand real estate through a concept called comparables you know every house in this block is somewhere between 200 and two hundred and thirty thousand dollars, give or take and that's not the way hunting property is uh we have a concept we refer to i've written about called huntable acres uh take 300 acres for instance um you can see 300 acres and uh 287 of them are all huntable Any place on that 278, 87 acres, you can rig a stand and kill a deer. There's 300 acres a half mile down the road and maybe only 78 acres of it is huntable. So if people are looking for a piece of hunting ground, the first thing they understand is how how much of that is huntable? And what do I mean by huntable? Well, if there's... Many old farms are... All the fields are uh, along the road. So, let's say it's a 250-acre farm, but if 100 acres of it is all hay fields that run along a public road, which is very common, because that's how you get your tractors and hay wagons in and out of out of the the hay fields. Right. Well, most of those hay fields are not really going to be where you're going to be hunting. Um, it, they're poachable. They're deer get harassed your old deer won't be out and those invisible very much and you're not going to want to have that kind of a piece of ground so you look for huntable acres we've had uh, situations where we were we've sold some property and we've lost a, a sale for 200 dollars. Uh, the guy went down the road and bought his own uh, 300 acres and saved 200 bucks a piece uh, he'd save 208 dollars an acre and What he bought was 100 acres of huntable land and 200 of non-huntable land, and so you've got to think that way. Uh, You've got to think, how does the wind go across the property? That's very, very important in terms of huntability. If your property is all up and down and ridges and gullies and swirls, um, and if you're a bow hunter, you may not be able to hunt that much of that property. That doesn't mean it's bad. That doesn't mean it's bad, but... You've got to think about whether the place you're buying is easy to hunt or not. In the more populated areas, you need to think through very carefully the neighborhood. Neighborhoods matter. If you're uh, going in and looking at a place and you're going to take a look at a property and the road that rings it is, is, you know, surrounded by junkyard dogs on chains and there's a bunch of racks nailed to every garage, uh, year and a half old deer and a pretty clear signal there that there's a lot of hunting going on in that neighborhood and not a lot of quality hunting and you might want to uh, do some background checking to see if the neighborhood you're moving into is going to be hunter friendly or uh, you know the kind of hunting you want to do friendly. Some places are notorious for being poached and like it or not that that's a reality and you're your time with that in that property can be holy hell if all you're spending your time doing is trying to run trespassers off of it so there's a lot of factors that go into what makes a good deer hunting property but huntable acres is important is it going to be easy to hunt um, we don't worry a lot about the deer population a lot of people get sucked into wow there's a lot of deer there well as long as there's some deer there you can make more deer by the way you hunt and what you do with the land. Uh, we worry a little bit more if they're overcrowded with deer and they've wiped out all the good habitat. But so numbers of deer, you've got to have a basis to begin with, but you can do a lot about that. But if you're in a neighborhood of five square miles and everybody there is an outlaw and everybody's a poacher, that that's to be definitely avoided. Uh, The best thing you can see on on the neighbor property as you get down the road would be a quality deer management sign on their trees where they say, we practice quality deer management. That's the neighborhood you want to be in because they're not going to be poaching. They're not going to be doing all the stuff that's going to make your life hell as a landowner. Yeah,
0: so this brings up a question that I often have kind of asked myself and have talked about with a number of people. You know, What would you prefer, Craig? Would you rather have a, a subpar property? in a great neighborhood or a property that looks absolutely dynamite has everything you could potentially want to be a great hunting property to hold deer but you've got a neighborhood full of maybe not all outlaws but some questionable practice people and different things like that would you rather have the great house or the great neighborhood
1: (laughs) that's a tough question neither (laughs) neither or both (laughs) they're both uh evils uh frankly i guess uh I'd rather probably, I think a a subpar property, I would probably prefer in a great neighborhood because I think the subpar will be more than compensated for by deer availability. And uh, by subpar, I I don't quite know much what you mean. Can you help me with that a little bit?
0: Uh, I just mean relative. Let's say there's your your ideal hunting property, which you just described, you know, that has good, um, good wind. It has, you know, the ability to access it. It's got a lot of huntable acres, all those things that make a good property. Let's say maybe this is a property that's lacking in a couple of those categories. It's maybe not a hundred acres of just a hayfield, but it's not your perfect property either.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that could be a, a deal breaker for me simply because, Let's say we're dealing with 200 acres, if you're only buying 60 acres that are huntable, then you're you're wasting a lot of money, no matter what the neighborhood's like. So that could be it. There's no finite answer to that, uh, Mark. It's, it's going to be a trade-off either way. In some cases, if you have a bad neighborhood and some trespassing, that can be shut down. And we write about that in the book. Uh, we People say, well, why do you write about that in the book? Because my son works with hundreds of landowners every year, and guess what? That's a very frequently asked question. How do I shut down this trespassing? What do I do? And there's ways to do that, and, you know, 90% of the time you're successful if if that's the only issue. If they poach every buck that gets a rack on his his head and starts to grow uh, horns, uh, antlers, that's another matter. That one might be such a severe issue that you'll never get any age on the deer in, in, in your neighborhood, and uh, gosh, that's a big deal breaker.
0: Yeah, well, uh, like you said, it's uh there's no perfect answer to that question, but it's an interesting interesting one to think about. I uh, I'm constantly bouncing around on that one myself, but
1: it is. You know, we did a we've over the years developed a rating scale of properties because we deal with a lot of them, and I think we have about eight criteria. And and Neil actually scores properties before he uh, – he advises a lot of people on purchases. And uh, I'm not trying to sell people anything, but, you know, somebody's going to buy their kid a $3,000 go-to-school used car, you know, transportation. And they have a mechanic come out and look at, under the hood to see if they're going to, you know, waste their money. And people go out and spend a half a million bucks on a property – and don't even take the trouble to have somebody check it out beforehand. He does a lot of that in his consulting work. And frankly, it's the best, uh, you know, $1,000 bucks you are ever going to spend to have somebody look who knows what they're doing, look something over before you go ahead and plunk down $400,000 or something.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And if I if I remember correctly, you guys cover some of those criteria in in the book as well. Is that correct?
1: We do, yeah. They're in the book, and uh, we lay them right out there. And it took us probably 10 years to develop the scale, and uh, it, they, they matter. Soil matters, and huntability matters, and wind matters, and, and the neighborhood matters, and uh, deer population matters. So that, that we have about eight criteria, and we, we discuss them very thoroughly.
0: Okay, interesting. A Dan, you've been pretty quiet so far. I'm curious, what, what are your thoughts on all this?
1: I'm just
2: soaking this all in. He's giving out some great advice here for free, and I'll take free advice any day. <laughs> but uh,
0: you'll take I free have, anything.
2: <laughs> exactly. So my question is: Okay, so we've we found our our perfect piece of property. We've purchased it for for the readers or for the listeners out there. What would your recommendation or tips or tricks be for the first thing to do to that property? to get it to be you know, to get it enhanced, to get it to be more of a successful whitetail hunting property.
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the cheap answer and, and the right answer first, but not the one you want. The first thing you <laughs> should do is get a good wildlife guy out there that knows how property should be set up and have them do a wildlife plan for you and tailor to your deeds, okay? But that's not probably where you wanted to go with that question um, one of the first things we tell people to do and it, it puts a smile on their faces a lot of visitors to our property have been just bought land and they're about as poor <laughs> they're about as poor as they can be because they've just plunked out a, a bunch of money right. and uh, their wife has just said if you spend one penny more on this hunting land you know we're going to go see a lawyer and it's not about a closing <laughs> yeah. And, uh, sound familiar, guys? Yeah. Yes, unfortunately so, uh, it does. But frankly, uh, the most underrated deal, if you've got $500 more, is, is a, a chainsaw and some safety chaps and glasses and ear ear protection and helmets. Because you can do more for whitetail property with a chainsaw than you can with a plow and a, and a $140,000 tractor and a bunch of discs and a bunch of corn planters. Um. A chainsaw is, really does a lot for a property, especially a new one that hasn't been worked over and uh, that there's a lot of, uh, uh, lot of uh, daylight being blocked from getting onto the ground. And you get in there and do some clear cutting and some browse cutting, as we call it, and some hinge cutting and create some cover and you create some food and you create some security all at the same time. And frankly, it requires, doesn't require a lot of money to do that. Everybody wants to jump into the planting game right away, the food plot game. And if you don't have agricultural fields that are ready to be planted and equipment to do it, it becomes a pretty complicated and costly endeavor. Eventually, most folks get there, but you're going to take baby steps in most cases. So the first thing I'd say is get your chainsaw going and start making some browse cuts and some brush cuts and some Areas where deer is going to want to lay up, and when the pressure gets on, and where they want to go in there and feed, and where right now this time of year the does are going to want to drop their fawns so the predators can't scoop them all up before they learn how to walk.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's a big part of what I took from your first your first book, Grow 'Em Right, was was the power of that chainsaw. Now, for, for someone who's maybe not familiar with this concept of creating bedding cover you know, with cuts like that, could you share with us a little bit more about how you'd use a chainsaw to go in there and make these bedding areas, maybe in a little more detail, other sure, than just cutting?
1: Sure, Well, you're not going to go in and cut down a, a beautiful mature oak woods or, or, or hardwoods or something like that to create bedding cover, but most most properties have fringe cover, a lot of people call it, or... Uh, More precisely, it would be early successional habitat where the old fields have grown back for maybe they've been growing 10, 15, 20 years. And what we call pole timber on them, it might be four inches across or eight inches across or six or four. And this kind of uh, habitat is taking over open spaces. And what it's doing is basically uh, blocking sun from hitting the ground. And if you think about where a deer lives and how they live, uh, what matters? What nothing matters over six feet high from the ground. Nothing matters to a deer because they—that's as high as they reach to eat, basically six feet. So what you do is go in and typically cut that tall timber or that early successional timber, let it fall, let it just fall down like pickup sticks every which way, and it makes a big mess and the good news is now the sun can hit the ground and there's dormant seeds laying in that ground and next spring or even that year a lot of that stuff will sprout again Uh, those dormant seeds will germinate and sprout a lot of the stumps you left will shoot up we'll call them suckers or or offshoots and there one other trick is we call hinge cutting where you cut the pole timber, oh, three-quarters of the way, six-eighths of the way, or seven-eighths of the way through, then it tips over, but part of the, 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 the timber's intact still. You haven't cut clean through the tree, and uh, that root system will feed that, that pole for a year, two, three years sometimes, and all of a sudden, everything that was out of that deer's reach is within deer's reach, and it's still growing. So there's a lot of food there. Now, if you take an acre and you cut 80% of the stems on that acre and you put them on the ground, you've created a giant footfall field of cover, and it's just a virtual mess. But it's loaded with food now. It's loaded with bedding and hiding places, and it becomes a secure area for deer
0: yeah i've had i've had really good success with that too on some of my my michigan properties it's It's incredible what you can do with just a few you know a few hours out there with a chainsaw like you said there's food there's bedding yeah. and
1: yeah it, it it's it really is and again Neil worked for both biologic and the whitetail institute so he there's nobody knows more about food plots and planting green plots than than neil and knows how to do it and believes in it but there's a big return on working with natural habitat, and natural vegetation, and it doesn't cost the same amount of money. The, the other thing is we've we've taken it kind of to a more efficient level. Um, not everybody can do this, but we, we you can. We call it crusher brush when you have three, four, five inch round uh, timber like that. We often uh, lease a dozer and a dozer operator. You're not going to want to do this yourself because it's very dangerous and just drive over that stuff and knock it to the ground and let it tip over and let it go sideways in every which way and you can do about five acres an hour and basically uh, that's that's pretty darn quick uh, depending on how dense it is compared to what you do with a chainsaw it's just a lot faster and a lot more efficient and uh, if, if you're in a hurry to get it done and you don't have a lot of weekends uh, sometimes crushing your brush works good We, we kind of write about that a lot in our books.
0: <laughs> no, I can see that working really well. So, that was kind of a perfect transition there. You mentioned the fact that Neil has worked with both Biologic and Whitetail Institute. What would you say on the food plot topic, what do you think's one of the biggest mistakes that people make when it comes to food plots?
1: Right now, uh, the biggest mistake I think people are making is It's a little disturbing to me um, because I believe that food plots, a property that uses food plots should make effort to feed deer all year long. And a lot of people now are doing nothing but annual plantings. They're putting them in the ground in August, late season, and hunting primarily for hunting over them. And that makes for good hunting, but I don't think it balances the other side of the equation enough where you give something back to wildlife and and you're willing to take the sacrifice that wildlife make and you hunt them. But uh, I would like to see food plotters invest uh, at least 60% of their property in, in annual plantings where the minute things green up in the spring like right now and most places are very green now we're just getting there in upstate new york you're probably somewhere in between in michigan Mm -hmm. but uh it it, i think we're we're over relying on annual plantings that go in late fall or late summer and we hunt over them and call it done and i'd i'd like to see the the planning um have a Broader benefit to wildlife um, from spring, right, well into winter.
0: Yeah, no, I can I can totally understand that. Dan, do you have any other last questions on the on the land side of things before we transition into the hunting part of the book?
2: Well, okay. So, someone like myself, I don't hunt or I don't own property and I don't lease property. So, as far as the manipulation I can do to a property is very. Minimum, to say the least. Right. Is is there any uh, tips or tricks for someone in my position that might be able to do very minimal, uh, you know, terrain manipulation uh, for for better success?
1: Sure, Um, Dan. One of the things you can do is buy a compass and and take a look at a topo map and. Maybe a little aerial of where you're going to hunt. Um, you started by saying you don't hunt. You didn't mean that. You don't I didn't. Know. Yeah, I didn't mean that. I didn't. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> but you don't hunt. You don't hunt on land you own or can manipulate. But you got to remember the weather manipulates that land every single day of the year. And uh, we talk about hunting by the compass. Um, for instance, the early season in the north. Uh, it's going to be cool and wet and moist and good groceries are growing many times on northern facing slopes where they've been cooler all summer. They haven't been hit by, hit by the drought. They've been wetter because there's more moisture in the north facing slope normally. So that that's land that's being manipulated by Mother Nature. Mother Nature's manipulating herself, not in a manipulative way, in a natural way, but knowing land doesn't require to own land. You just have to understand land. Uh, we talked about that as well. Fast forward three months, it's late season. Now you have you're on a ground and there's a southern exposure. Guess what that southern exposure it's going to produce food a good probably a full month longer into the winter than the northern exposure. So you're gonna shift your focus and hunt that southern exposure. Things will grow longer in into November, into December. If there's some spring seeps or any kind of uh water seeps on southern exposure, they'll remain green in well into the winter normally. It's a warmer place, it's out of the north biting north wind. So you can learn how land works without owning it and manipulating it. And uh Winds shift and shift to more or less a west northwest wind in most areas. Late in the season, they start out farther in the south in most areas. So, yeah, go. What you can do is figure out how the the sun moves over the property, where things grow at what time of year, and the deer have already figured this out about you know twenty thousand years ago, and Mama teaches it to the fawns and and. There are places on our property that you won't find a deer on North Slope in December. They'll be all over the southern exposures, and that's where you're going to be, and that's where you're going to hunt because the habitat there is tailor-made for them.
0: I, uh, I love that idea of, of hunting by the compass. That's that's pretty interesting. So continuing then as we shift to the side of the part two of the book that's really focused more on hunting those mature bucks once you've developed a property or have a property that holds them, in the book, you mentioned the fact that you know you guys believe that mature bucks have unique personalities, and I really like this concept. Can you elaborate a little bit more about how you think you know these bucks have their own personalities and then as hunters, how can we learn a buck's personality and then use that to our advantage?
1: Well, I guess it's how do you know when you know how did we why did we conclude that um, uh, <laughs> I'm talking to you now from a cabin and, and- i I saw a deer go move by the cabin about thirty minutes ago and and Neil is on the land too, so I don't think there's a day goes by i at least five uh, six out of seven days a year I'm watching deer, and so is my son neil in in the woods all the time. so you begin to pick some things up but uh what we with total certainty we we understand and we Seen personalities emerge on deer, uh, deer that we've known. Uh, we had a deer here, a two and a half year old buck once. We called him Evander after Evander Holyfield, and he was a fighting fool. And this deer, every time we saw him on camera, he was bristled up. Every time he was at the group, he was he was cowing the other bucks in the group. He was uh, constantly spoiling for a fight by by. Two weeks into the bow season, he had half of his tines were snapped off from fighting. Wow! And he was a very aggressive deer, and you can hunt him with rattling horns, and and you can uh, you can hunt him with grunt calls, and all kinds of aggressive hunting tactics will work on a deer like that. Frankly, the neighbor down the road shot him in the backyard because Vander came in and started picking a fight with a life-size deer target. <laughs> and they shot him off the back porch with a bow no, that's he, a, he didn't care
0: that's a story
1: and, and and we've had we have deer here that we never photograph in the day we never see them in the day uh we find their sheds uh and they're very secretive very unaggressive deer and they home bodies uh we have a lot of cameras we use and this deer one that i killed a number of years ago got very very lucky very late in the year he was driven out into the feeding situation because of terrible weather and he showed himself during the last 10 minutes of daylight and, and I killed him with a muscle loader but that buck would show up at night but you wouldn't see him today if if you if you believe the concept and you internalize everything happens for a reason in the woods then and, and look for reasons all the time you can begin to put the patterns together but the deer are very much personality driven and a, a, an aggressive deer you can do so many different things with them compared to these very very timid deer um people who have captive deers you know see some deer are aggressive breeding deer other never make a move towards a the doubt they just don't want any part of the fight they don't want any part and they could be very very big six, seven, eight-year-old bucks weighing 240 pounds and they still don't choose to try to breed because they don't want to the fight, they don't want the hassle. And we know deer that are big travelers and they do a lot of walking and others who, I, I'm not sure they cover 20 acres in, in, a, in a day, if that. And a lot of the telemetry studies that are coming back now are helping us understand individual deer behavior patterns and how they are. But Unquestionably, there certain deer just love to tear up trees and love to you know make scrapes and be the boss of the whole half side of the hill. And others are very secretive, sulking around. And you got to hunt them differently.
2: I read uh, a little bit in your book uh, about your your use of trail cameras. Can you elaborate? I'm a, I'm a huge fan of trail cameras. Uh, for me, the first card pull of the year is probably the most exciting. Uh, just up there with like finding a big shed or uh, you know actually killing a deer. Could you tell us your strategy about uh, how you use trail cameras?
1: Well sure we, uh, we've we been using them a long time. We started with the primitive ones that, that would go off and the deer would jump five feet in the air because of the shutter noise and the <laughs> flashes and stuff I mean old Harry Jacobson I think was the first one to bring those out but We've been using them a long time, and and the whole culture of trail cameras, I think that's become really one of the three biggest inventions, I think, in the last century in the hunting industry. Uh, Telescopic sight and da-da-da, but any compound bow. And and I think trail cameras really is about third in, in, in the rank order or importance, and it's changing everybody. So we've gone from basically the beauty contest where, Everybody was taking pictures of deer and you'd bring them in and, you know, you'd run to Walmart and get your film developed and then that night at dinner you'd be passing them around and it was a beauty contest. We were just looking for big deer and big big antler deer or something to more of an understanding now. And basically, if there's the cameras are so good now, they're so fast, you can see behaviors, you can see the videos, you can see what they're doing and you begin to understand the personalities a lot. You can see personality on film if you know what you're looking for. The aggressive buck looks a certain way, stands a certain way. Cat, um, You know, if you're seeing all the time, you see the other bucks out, leave the picture frame and get out of the area when the buck comes to the camera, you know. So you can learn about their personality, about how they photograph, what they look like on camera. You can also learn their territory and how they move because basically you you know we'll catch a a buck a shooter buck on camera and we catch him twice so we say okay there there's a data point two data points he's here two different times and he's right now he's nocturnal and basically though let's see where he hangs out so we'll move a few cameras into that general area where we think and, and you know so now He's on two cameras, but not on the third, so we'll pull that third and shift it over to the other side of the original camera, uh, you know, 800 yards or something, that it caught him there. Eventually, you can very often put a pattern together if you're tracking a steer, if you have a half dozen cameras, and look at the time he shows up, where he shows up, and you can get a feel for how he moves across that property. Uh, Neil killed a very special buck a few years ago. We called him Traveler because he, he moved a lot, and uh, our neighbors actually caught him on camera. But Traveler, um, Neil watched this deer on camera for about 50 some days before he ever hunted him because he only moved at night. We never caught him in the daylight on camera. And then all of a sudden, you know, we got into the rut, and now we caught this deer on camera. Two different times. Once he actually bred a doe on camera. That wow. was time to make your move. So we we understood that buck was a total nocturnal buck, and the last thing we would do is make a move on that deer at night. Uh, I'm sorry, that only moved at night because you you know that would be the end of him in that area if he cut your uh, scent a couple times when you went in and hunted. We knew where he liked to be. We knew we liked to hang out, but we knew he did all his hanging out at night. So you can pick up a lot of deer behavior on cameras by triangulation, using two, three, four, five cameras, moving them around. And uh, if you're lucky enough to get these uh, cameras now, where you can get them come in on cell phone coverage, you don't have to be pulling film all the time and, and stinking up the woods when you run into these cameras. So you can do a lot with them as long as you're looking to understand your behavior and get out of the beauty contest mode. What you're looking to see a beautiful buck, that's great, but you can learn so much more.
0: Yeah, no, they've totally changed the game, that's for sure. So two more questions on that topic. I'm curious, how often are you checking your trail cameras? Because you mentioned the fact that you're using some of those observations to um, make hunting decisions. So I'm curious how often you're checking them, and then I'm curious... Where are you placing these cameras? Is it just on field edges, or are you going on trails or back towards bedding areas? Um you know what's your strategy when it comes to location
1: well we we start typically on feeding locations and socialization areas. Uh, you know the the socialization is a combination of food and staging areas where they tend to you know commingle, and uh basically, from there. Uh, that helps us get a good feel for for what's going on and when it's going on and who's around so I would say early in the season 80% of and I'm saying we're on our own property here 500 acres we run about a dozen cameras about 80% of them are on food sources because we over the years created a lot of open food plot type food sources and that's where they spend their time especially in the evenings so that gives us a, a, an idea of who's here, at taking the inventory, putting together your shoot, sh- shooter list. And then uh, as um, we anticipate the movement to start to set in where they're going to move and travel more in a pre-rutting situation when they get walking around and these bucks do more than food feed, they go looking, we'll shift a lot of them to ridges in known travel corridors where these bucks are tend to move through as they are searching and seeking out does. So we, we shift some of them then off of food sources and get them more into uh, woods environments, uh, ridge environments, and, and places like that. Because uh, frankly, that guy isn't going to spend uh, that you're after to kill that older deer. Is not going to be spending a lot of fall time on food plots. He'll spend it in the early season in the summer where he's eating heavy. But as soon as his his focus shifts from fattening up to breeding, he's gonna get out and he's gonna move through those food plots, maybe never even touch them because by then the pressure's building. The neighborhood pressure's building, the traffic on the back roads is building. He's aware he's five years old. He knows there's stuff going on. So he's going to spend less and less time out there posing in the open. So we're, we've got a lot of our cameras by then back off of food plots on areas where he, we have a very good feel he, he might want to cross. And we're just going to see, is he going this way or that way? Is he using this ridge or that ridge? That kind of uh, scouting. And we check him about once a week, and then it would be definitely a Kind of a midday check. Hopefully, we won't bump into them, but we know from using cameras that those deer will will know you were there and cut your tracks 12, 16 hours after you've walked in the woods. They're gonna they they know they've come across you. So that the, the tele the uh, cell phone cameras are terrific. That way, I
2: have a another question as far as you know as hunters we have to be able to learn from our mistakes and uh and then make our next move based on failure over the years and i take it you've been hunting a long time how many are what would you say is the biggest educational moment in your hunting career
1: wow i think uh (laughs) i think that's a great question and the biggest educational it's been an era it's really uh my son is it's such a level of mastery of perfect pitch for deer it's just the time i spend with neil and how he understands how what deer do and why they do it and i'll never get to that level but just to give you the real direct answer i was uh I was 14 years old, and, and a, an eight pointer, if you can believe that, in Pennsylvania, was working his way to me with a doe. And I, I'd i been reading, and uh, like so many young people, all of my education had come from reading Lenny Rue and other books about hunting and how to kill deer, and Lawrence Kohler's great classic book, Shots at Whitetails. And I'd somehow got it in my head that even if a leaf touched my bullet, uh, uh, between me and that deer, I wouldn't hit him. And actually, I just overweighted on this beautiful buck to come. And at 14 yards, he some, he went, uh, he turned it inside and out, and I missed him. And if you, if you just have to answer that question honestly, which I'm trying to do. I learned at that moment that if you've got your shot and it's a good shot, you better get on that trigger and shoot shoot 'em or you're gonna lose that animal. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's not a, good, a very good answer, good but it is an honest answer and I've always been a pretty quick shooter ever since. I don't over I don't over measure. I I tend to shoot. I've
2: l I've learned that lesson the hard way before.
1: Okay. Well, good. That's two of us then. uh, (laughs) I kind of, uh, the same thing that certainly applies for the bow. If you've got that standing shot, uh, well, you, if you tend to wait for a better one, you, you might, you know, wait till it broke the wagon. You may not get it. It doesn't come out very well in an interview, but frankly, uh, it's an honest answer. Yeah,
2: Yeah. It's a good answer.
0: Very true. Well, One more question then before we wrap things up here as we're getting close on time. But towards the end of your book, Craig, you described seven habits of highly effective deer hunters, and I thought that was pretty interesting. And I was curious if you could share maybe a couple, two, three of those habits and elaborate a bit on them for us.
1: Okay, well, I uh, think if I could remember them pretty uh, accurately, I guess, I guess, I guess, You know, a a highly successful deer hunter is going to be like a highly successful anything. And I've known a lot of them. Let me let me put this. I've hunted with some of the best hunters in in our country, and some real power names of deer hunting, and some real non-power names of deer hunters who were darn good too. And they're always in control of the situation. Um, They they go into a hunt. Some of these are what I call suitcase hunters. They travel. Lots of different places, see lots of different things. And frankly, a lot of them are camera hunters, and they have a week to get something done, and they have to get it done. And they're going to make a move real quick. Uh, they're going to have to learn what's going on very quickly. And if they, if somebody's hosting them or guiding them, these, these, uh, these very successful guys will take control of the situation within a day or two and change, change tactics, change what they're doing, but they're in control, they're not, a, they don't just take what the woods deals them. They're going to try to um, basically put things in their favor or stack the deck in their favor. Um, so most successful hunters I know are either going to, you know, find a good place to go or they're going to basically, uh, you know, hunt under good conditions or they're going to modify some habitat. Or they're gonna got, become the smartest guy, you know, in the, in the deer neighborhood, or something, to to put the odds in their in their favor. And it's just like anyone in business or anything else. Uh, a successful hunter is gonna understand deer, and he's gonna understand he or she's gonna understand how land and deer interact. Um, that's huge, and they do. Uh, uh, it's just you know, some guys are are lucky. And uh, but it's really not a luck thing. It's it's a knowledge thing. And again, I forget was it Lombardi where you know preparation and luck come together, you have success. Uh, these guys prepare, and uh, these people make a plan. A successful hunter will make a plan for sure. He was not just willy nilly walk out there and sit down and hope. Uh, he'll have a reason for where he goes and why he went there. He'll have a strategy in mind, and when it's time, he'll make his move. I, I have to say, my son Neil is a classic example of that. He'll he'll watch a deer with camera, with whatever it takes, normally camera, because of the night thing. And he won't move on a nocturnal deer, but when that deer shows himself in the, in the day, and all of a sudden he becomes a target he will he'll pounce on that situation and uh so so a successful guy makes his move when the time is right maybe like a great boxer and all of a sudden he hits you with that right hook or right cross and down you go and that's another characteristic I see of good hunters they they wait and then they pounce when it's right
0: that's awesome i uh i think those all hit home. They hit right at home, given all the different things we've already talked about today and a lot of the other things we've talked over the past couple episodes here on the Where to Hunt podcast. Um and I think that's probably a, a perfect place for us to wrap things up here today too. Um now, you know, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the book we've been discussing and the book that that houses these um the seven habits that you were just talking about is Tales from Ground to Gun. And that's now also available as an ebook on Amazon for $9.99, I believe. And as I understand it you're also offering a special bonus to anyone who buys that ebook this week, Craig. You know, can you share with us a little bit more about what that bonus is and how people can get that?
1: Yeah, well we, we basically uh, put together I uh, kinda of the best of the best of North Country Whitetails. Uh as you mentioned, we wrote an earlier book, Grow 'em right, which is kind of a bible of property management and we we went back and looked at all of our speeches and stuff over the last ten years or and captured a lot of what we just call them pearls of wisdom and put them all together in one ebook and uh we uh you know commented about them why we said what we said why it's that and we put it together in a in a, a short uh, to the point collection of uh smart things that we may have said over the last 20 years that can help out a, a landowner or a deer hunter and uh we said, Well, we'll put it out there this week only. Uh, we'll send you a PDF of it and uh you'll have a, a good time uh, going through it and talking about these various uh pearls from the the guys from the North Country Whitetails.
0: Awesome. That sounds great. And if I remember correctly, right, if they purchase the e book, they just need to send you guys an email with that receipt and then you'll send back the PDF. So That's right. Oh, excellent. Yep we'll, I we'll send make out,
1: I send out a couple today uh, and we just turn it right around and shoot it to you and you'll be reading it within 10 seconds.
0: Great. So I'll make sure to mention all that in the show notes um here on the podcast as well so that if anyone's looking for the links for that information, we'll have it there. Um that said, Craig, I think that's going to wrap it up for here for us here today and I just wanted to thank you so much. I know that me and Dan enjoy this and I think we've all learned a lot, so thank you.
1: Yes, uh, I was uh, my pleasure too and uh, I'm sorry if your uh, listeners had to hear radar of the tracking dog barking at one of my chickens out in the backyard. <laughs> That's what that was all about. It wasn't a gear coming through. It was one of our chickens got loose. He <laughs> Life... going to go out and just put him in his place. <laughs> <laughs> <Life> <laughs> nice happens. talking to you guys. You as well. Thanks hey, so thanks much. much. Any time, gentlemen. Anytime, gentlemen. Anytime I can help you, happy to do it. Great. Thank you very much. All right, Bye.
0: All right, well, thank you so much to everyone out there listening today. We're thrilled you could join us, and hopefully you found our conversation with Craig as helpful as we did. Now, if you enjoyed the show today, we would love it if you'd leave a rating or review on iTunes. It takes just a quick second, and it helps a ton, so thanks in advance for that. We'd also, of course, like to thank our partners who helped make this show possible. Big thanks to Sitka Gear, Bushnell Optics, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, LaCrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants and the Whitetail Institute of North America. That said, be sure to visit wiredtohuntcom episode nine to view the show notes from today's episode. That's where we'll include all the links you need to pick up a copy of Craig's book and get more information on the other interesting things he's got going on. Also, if you're new, please head over to Wiredhunt.com to sign up for our Whitetail Fix newsletter to get updates on what's new and interesting on the blog. That said, thanks again, Wired Hunt Nation, and until next time, have a great week. And stay Wired to Hunt. Oh, <laughs>